How's everyone doing today? It's good to see all of you. Um, man, well, uh, it's good to be back. I uh, spent... <laughs> Thank you, Sylvester. Uh, we've spent the last uh, two weeks trying to wrap up the first draft of the book. I'm, I would argue I'm 98% done. I was supposed to be 100% done two weeks ago. Um, so, uh, but it's been, a, it's been a good experience. It's been a, one that is, I, I've come to the conclusion that whether the book even came out or not, it's been good for me to personally um, wrestle through uh, what it means to be a believer, what it means to come from a broken background. Do I truly believe the thing that I proclaim every week, which is this idea that God has this incredible ability uh, to weave the dissonant notes of our histories into his redemptive purposes. And I say that, and it always sounds poetic, but as I was riding through my own history with my father and the lack of his presence and the fact that he's dying now alone in Alaska, um, it, it, man, it opened up wounds. And I'm just going to say it. If I start crying today, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I've just been crying basically for two weeks straight. Um, and uh, part of that is because my beautiful boy, my son, Henry, um, moved to L.A. on Thursday. And Darcy and I have just been like, we cannot get a stinking grip. I don't know what's wrong with us. I'm like, I am a helicopter parent because I've been looking at condos in L.A. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think probably part of it is wrestling through the absence of my dad um, and then also the gratefulness that I have to God that it was after I came to faith that we had Henry um, and that, that I was able to tell a different story um, in not being absent and uh, being present. And uh, so there, there's the emotion flows out of both the sadness to not have him uh, upstairs anymore, uh, but it also is the gratefulness that he's a good boy um, who I have a good relationship with. All that to say, uh, as I've come back, um, I've been thinking through uh, kind of the close of the series that we've been in uh, when I've been teaching, which is really what does this next season of Door of Hope look like? Um, and what are things that we need to make central um, if we're going to push ahead after being ravaged by this last year and a half of COVID and political tension and racial tension and all of the, the disruption that we've seen in our city. And so we're going to do two more messages um, today and next Sunday to wrap up this series. But today what I want us to consider um, is the necessity of being together. Is it good for man to be alone? Um, and then next week I want us to reconsider uh, the pillar of the city. Uh, and just to give you a, a hint of where I'm going on that, when Door of Hope began, I was very idealistic about the church's ability to bring transformation to an urban center. And I love Portland. Um, I'm grieved by the state it's in. Uh, but I have loved the city. And let me just say, it's not been easy to love over the last year and a half. Uh, and as I've been thinking through that, I started going back and looking at all of the scripture around cities 
And I used to kind of hold idealistically to the idea that there was a theology of the city. Um, and I would say that the only theology I'm comfortable saying is around the city now is that the city is always an emblem of what man is capable of doing without God. Now, it's true that the Bible may have started in a garden and it ends in a city, but it's foolish of us to try to compare earthly cities to the heavenly city that is coming. And that the city is, is, is a place where humanity comes together in its genius and creates civilization. But out of that always comes the reality that, that we have to continue to address. And it's two realities. And, and this is, these are the realities, and they even feed into today's message on togetherness, which is that we cannot make the world less sinful, nor can we accept it as it is. And those two things, to deny either of those realities, is to deny the fact of human history. Um, and so I'm like, I'm like, is God about making the city a better place or is God about a great rescue mission? And I'm kind of leaning more and more these days toward this is a great rescue mission. <laughs> this is a great rescue mission and that the best is yet to come. So today let's consider how it is that we enter into that rescue mission and why it is because we live in what I would call a culture of Babel. Um, a place of confusion, a place of brokenness, a place where man says, I will be my own God. How is it that we enter into God's great rescue mission? And it is something that I would argue has to be done together. It cannot be done alone. I want to ask the question, first question I'm going to ask today is, is it ever good to be alone? <laughs> is it ever good to be alone? There's been a lot of renewed interest in the contemplative practices of solitude and silence. And I just entered into that practice last week. I was at, a, or two weeks ago, I was by myself at a cabin on the Deschutes River. And the, the location was beautiful. Um, it, it sits right on the water. Uh, and there are these bluffs that kind of rise up from behind, uh, behind the river that just jet straight up and just beautiful, like spotted pine trees. This is over by Warm Springs. And it's right next to the wildlife um, preserve that's there. And so, you know, you see rainbow trout surfacing, even occasionally jumping below. And then there are just tons of osprey. There are osprey nests all over by the, by the circling above. I even, I watched an osprey literally dive catch like what looked like a two-foot trout and then barely be able to even lift itself out of the water as it's carrying this giant, I mean, just magnificent. But by day three, alone in that cabin, the beauty of the natural surroundings was becoming increasingly diminished by the chaos and the troubling realities of my mind alone. And I found that, for me, I would have loved that place and have loved that place more with my wife and my kids with me. My ability to enjoy a thing, and, and I would say my temperament leans for this. I'm actually, in case you're, you're like, 
you're going to take this bent because you're an extrovert. First of all, introvert, extrovert, whatever, tomato, tomato, I don't care. Uh, we're all a blend of both of those realities, and we have leanings one way or the other. Um, and we can't say because we're an introvert that it's all right for us to always be isolated, nor can you say because you're an extrovert that you literally can't handle being alone for even a second. This is not what I'm talking about when I ask the question if it's ever good for man to be alone. But what I will say is this, is that I have found that the ability to truly enjoy a thing, nothing brings enjoyment to, uh, to the things that we do uh, in the way that it, it, it brings enjoyment when it's done with another. The things that I love the most, I want to share with others. The things that I care about the most, I want to experience with others. I, I was so excited when I woke up early in the morning, I walked out onto the deck, and there, literally two feet from my head, was a black widow. Now, I've never seen a black widow out in the open like that. I mean, it was like jet, shiny black with a full-on red hourglass on her stomach. And I know it's a her because black widows eat the men after they, after they mate. So that's why they're called black widows. <laughs> and uh, they're isolated hunters, I learned. Because, of course, I became obsessed. And instead of writing my book, did a Wikipedia hunt that led me down a whole rabbit trail of all the dangerous spiders. What's actually dangerous? Did you know this? Brown recluses don't actually live in Oregon. It's all a myth. Uh, and you're like, no, I've seen one. That's part of the myth. We keep propagating the lie. It's what we do best. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sitting there. And what's the first thing I want to do? I'm like... My family's not there, so I take a picture of it and immediately text it to them, which, and I texted it to the staff. I wanted to share it with everybody I could think of in this time of alone, and, and, and I did. I also sprayed it with Lysol, thinking that would kill it, which did seem to freeze it for a moment, and then I picked it up and tried to rinse it off so I could get a good picture of the red hourglass, and laid, laid her on her back to take a picture, and right as I laid her down, she was pretending to be dead and tried to like run away. And I'm like, how did I not get bit just now? This was terrible. I was like a dumb little, like, little boy who found something that he should not play with. Um, but here I found myself realizing the truth of Martin Luther's statement that solitude is the devil's playground. Because the longer I was alone, in my mind, the less healthier I became. Genesis 2.18 speaks to this profound truth. For God speaks over Adam, and, and this is what we're going to explore today because not many people think about this, um, is the fact that God speaks over Adam in a sinless state. He is sinless. This is before the fall. And he says, it is not good that man be alone. Now, this passage is often utilized as a passage to support, you know, our concept of the covenant of marriage. And it does speak to that, but it is, it is a universal truth, actually, that speaks to our need for, if I could utilize the language of Martin Buber, the need for the other. It's the need for another. Now, look at what Karl Barth says about this. I, I, I love this. He says, work that is not collaboration is bustling idleness. Joy that is not shared joy is empty delight. Suffering that is not sympathy is dull pain. The human being who is not a fellow human being, that is not about the other, 
is inhuman. What's interesting is that this statement comes at the end of it is not possible to know what it means to be human until we know God. But we can't say that we know God if it doesn't lead us into togetherness. And I think that this is a beautiful reminder because if solitude is the devil's playground, and I just would argue this, that it seems like a reasonable assessment. Consider the wilderness temptation of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness, who is there in the wilderness? Who? The devil. The devil. There to tempt him. I, I, think, I think of Castaway with Tom Hanks. Who's there with him? Wilson. What is Wilson? All I'm saying is his sway over Hanks seems suspect. If you don't know who Wilson is, he's the tennis ball that Tom Hanks talks to to stay sane. <laughs> or volleyball, not tennis ball. I meant volleyball. I said tennis ball, which is, this is why I need you. <laughs> you see, there's a mystery that has to be unpacked. And, and it's found in this verse in Genesis 2.18. Because here, here it is. God speaks over Adam, whose very name means mankind. Before the fall, in the midst of a creation that is good and declares that it's not good. He says over his good creation that it's not good. That man be alone. And, and what's profound about this, and, and, and because it goes beyond the marriage union, I would argue that this statement alone puts a nail, a final nail in the coffin of the rise of individualization in our society. That... that Sinless man, sinless God-breathed man, alone with God, and God says that that man alone, that is without other humans, is incomplete even with God. I am immediately reminded of one of the most famous lines quoted in Christian history from Augustine. And it raises the question, is Augustine right? Is God enough? Augustine's statement is this. He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing. Now what I would argue in this statement from Augustine is that the second half of the statement is true. But the first half of the statement is not true. Now, is God enough is a provocative, is a provocative question. Um, and what I would say is simply this. It may be fair to say that the one who has God has the one who is the source of everything, who sustains everything. But according to God himself, the one who is with God does not have everything he needs without the other. This is the important point. It is not that God was saying to Adam, he isn't enough, but that he created Adam for others like himself. And it was in Adam and Eve's relationship together before the fall that the image of God was most fully realized. Now, I don't think that it's speculative on any level to declare that in their togetherness before sin entered the story, 
they were now best suited to commune with God, bring forth the divine proclamation that God spoke over creation at the end of chapter 1, in which he said, God saw what he had made, and he declared that it was what? Very good. But here's the problem. Uh, and this is what I would argue. Why is man without the other, us without each other, not complete even with God? And I think it sits in the fundamental conviction and one of our key doctrinal concepts that is seen throughout Scripture, although not explicitly declared, and it's the doctrine of the Trinity. Because man is not, nor ever will be, a community within himself. God within himself, let us make man in our image. God is making humanity in his image, which means that we are made for relationship. Because God is, in the very essence of his being, a community within himself. He is complete he is enough for himself because he is within himself a complete community. The communion of Father, Son, and Spirit, which is what the creative love of God flows forth from. It is out of that communion, that creative love, that actually created all that is. God created out of nothing everything that is. This is why we as Christians do not hold to, uh, to a pantheistic vision of God, that everything that is is a part of God. God can never be confused with his creation, but his creation is sustained by him, the creator. And so what God is saying of man, apart from the other, that was Adam before Eve was created, is that man is not complete without others like himself. Because unlike God, we are not a communion within ourselves. We are more, I was telling my wife this morning, being alone with my own thoughts, I realized that I am not a community within myself. I'm more like a, like a madhouse, like a menagerie. That's what my head is. Uh, I'm like a, uh, and, and, and often a menagerie of what I would call artificial needs. <laughs> My mind is a, is a chaotic mess. It is actually the presence of my wife, the presence of my kids, the presence of the staff and you, the community, that actually brings a settledness to the discomfort that it is to be me without you. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Because if we're not a community within ourselves by ourselves then this speaks to what then the image of God is. Uh, look with me. We're going to go back now. Genesis 1. There's, there's an interesting reality between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And by the way, I, I called Mr. or should I say Dr. Tim Mackey uh, while I was at the ca cabin to work through this whole section uh, of the book with him. And, he, and, and it was a really fun conversation. But Genesis 1 gives an overview of the entire creation account. But then Genesis 2 is a zoom in to day 6, which is why there is a gap between the creation of man and the creation of woman. But, but in Genesis 1, when it talks about the creation of man, it's talking about the creation of mankind, that is both man and woman together. 
And it says in, in verses 26 and 27, it's behind me on the screen, then God said, let us make mankind. Uh, this, the word man can be translated as mankind. Uh, in the Hebrew, it literally is the same word as the word Adam. And Adam, his name means humanity. So here it says, let us make mankind, that is man and woman, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here we have this compressed account of the creation story. And on the sixth day, God uniquely creates man, which can be translated mankind, that is both man and woman, in his own image, which encompasses man and woman together. And so this is really important because it's easy for us to think that we have the, we all carry within us the image of God. But because we live after the fall, in the midst of this fall, we recognize that that image has been marred. But even before the fall, the image is not complete in the single person. The image is complete in the two together. It is actually the two together with God that there is real communion, communion the way that God intended communion to be. We need the other. I need you to actually most fully represent the image of God. This is why, and I would argue this fervently, we function as a witness to Jesus best together because all of us come in with brokenness, with sin. We all come in with the marred image of God. But it is together in a vulnerable and humble posture, recognizing and confessing our brokenness together, centering around the very presence of Jesus, we the church, his body, he the head. It is together that the Spirit of God manifests the reality of who Jesus is most powerfully. This is why when we did church in the park, the whole concept was don't send the preacher out into the park to yell at the pagans. No, what we do is we go out into a public space and we do the same thing we do in here, which is that we gather around the word of God, the living word, Jesus himself. We proclaim him, we worship him in a public setting, which it is us together that creates the power of the witness. We shouldn't be confused or even, even enamored because even apart from God, this is a normal part of human psychology. There is power in the masses. There is power in people gathered together, working together. And, and I think that this is a, a beautiful reality, is that we best image God together. And that was true even before the fall. And so it is together that God blessed Adam and Eve as co-laborers with him. I think this is one of those things that is so important for us to understand, is that it is together serving under God as co-laborers in his world uh, that we see God saying, and God saw his creation, and he declared that it was very good. 
But now when we zoom into Genesis chapter 2, we see the gap. And the mystery lies in the gap. And I believe that the gap between the creation of man, between Adam and Eve, was to help us feel the tension and the incompleteness of man with God apart from the other. And so in Genesis chapter 2, there is a zoom in. Man has been placed into the garden. God gives him the task of naming the, the animals within, uh, within creation. And it says, it said this in Genesis 2.18, And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then in verses 22 through 24, it says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they became one flesh. And it even says, goes on to say, And they were naked and not ashamed. This is, there was no sin. There was no self-consciousness. It was an outward existence as God intended it to be. Their fulfillment was in living outwardly toward one another and toward God. And when we look at this gap between the creation of man from the dirt, which is what we are told, and the creation of woman from the man, though different, they are both carrying equally the breath of God. Now, it is this passage that has led to a lot of unfortunate ideas around the relationship between men and women. And, and, and honestly, I am utilizing these passages to discuss more, uh, more what it means to be in relationship with one another, with what, what it means to be in relationship with humanity, humanity in general. But let me just say that woman being made from the side of man uh, is not in any way a diminishment of what it means to be a woman. In fact, I think I would rather come out of the side than out of the dirt. But here is the fact for all of us that have come since. We all contain that, both of those realities. We are all born from flesh and we all go back to the dirt. In case you were still thinking that you could live forever in light of a pandemic. I think the pandemic is most, the most discomforting thing of COVID is just it reminds all of us that death awaits all of us. There is a return to the dirt. It has been appointed once for man to die, then comes the judgment. And I think that this is a, a reality that we cannot, we cannot avoid. We can't diminish, we cannot diminish the woman uh, Besides, all humanity carries the realities of both. We come from flesh, we return to the dirt. But it is here we find man alone with God, without a suitable companion, and God says it's not good. And for God, in the creation of the other, he gave Adam someone that was fitted or fashioned to commune with him in the uniqueness of his own created being. That is that God creates for Adam another human being, one that is like him, one that he can relate to, that is different and unique, but like him, which is what all of us are. We are all human beings. At the, if we were to take everything down to a cellular level, to, a, to, a, to the level of the gene, we would find that there is no difference, and yet every one of us are absolutely unique. 
I mean, I've seen people that look like a doppelganger of someone else, but if you were to examine anyone, even an identical twin, it still seems, we had identical twins at Door of Hope, two pairs of them. They looked, I would confuse them sometimes, but the longer I was around them, the more I saw that there was still uniqueness, even in identical twins that made it possible to tell them apart. And I think that this is the beauty of, of humans together. Different, but alike. Sameness and uniqueness. And this is what creates the oneness that God calls very good. How strange that it is out of this very good situation that we are also confronted with the liability, which is women. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> You're like, where is he going with this? <laughs> the liability is not in the woman. The liability is in the moment that there is the other. Two people together. How quickly it is easy for us to forget about God. Because it was through the liability, God saw it was worth it. The risk in creating was worth the plan. And when I say liability, I want to be very careful to say that I am not insinuating, and we'll get to this in just a second, that, <laughs> that the fall took God by surprise. Uh, I think open theism, uh, which is the idea that God does not know the future, um, which is a very simplified way of saying what that idea is, is, is completely ungrounded in, in, in Scripture and its attempts again and again to create rational understanding of the mystery of suffering. And it is, it's attempts to create a rational understanding of the mystery of atonement and the mystery of God's sovereignty and the balance of human responsibility. And I think that we do great damage to the gospel when we remove mystery. Um, but I think that by the close of, of Genesis chapter 3, we see this, that the very good union of man and woman becomes the very not good reality of the fall. Because by the end of Genesis 3, sin has entered the story and changed everything. There is tragedy, mankind now alienated, death reigning, the serpent ruling, and the earth now is groaning. And this is, this is something that cannot be ignored and what we find is this, man now playing God. Genesis 21, verse 24, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, it's meant to be Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has now become like one of us. I want you to see what he's saying there. Behold, the man has become like one of us. Essentially what God is saying is, behold, man has chosen for himself to define what is right and wrong. He has decided for himself to be his own God. They have decided for themselves that they will define for themselves what is right and what is wrong. Behold, humanity now is playing God. And they know good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, 
he placed on the east side, he placed him and placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden. So humanity is forced out of the idyllic paradise of the garden. And, and here you see the natural outcome, the rupture of relationship. If before man wasn't complete in a sinless state with God, now in a sinful state, not only is man not complete with God, now he has ruptured the relationship with God and with the other. There is rupture between Adam and Eve. All of a sudden they are aware of their nakedness. All of a sudden they're ashamed. All of a sudden they are hiding. And all of a sudden now we are given the picture that, that the relationship between men and women will be that of tension. And we know that to be true throughout human history. And here we have God pushing humanity out of the garden. Let me just say this. God driving humanity out of the garden was an act of grace. Because had he left humanity in a perfect place, in a sinful state, they would not see their need for God. Part of the difficulty of existence, I think the cursing of the ground, let us curse the ground for his sake, is what it says. The ground is cursed to force us to turn to God because in our sinful state, we have become impotent in our ability to reach God in our efforts. God has to intervene, and he intervenes through a whole series of ways to bring our attention to our need. That there is no coming to God unless there's first a bottoming out. That the path to redemption always begins in a hole. <laughs> unless we, if we refuse to die, we cannot live. And I think that this is a, a powerful thing that God is in his, in his mercy has pushed them out. So now let's consider the liability piece. Because God could not have been surprised by the fall. He is after all the beginning and the end and it is after all his story and he is the storyteller. I love the words of G.K. Chesterton. If the world is telling a story, there must be a storyteller. And what I like to say is that we have to leave room at the same time uh, and this, 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 the usage of the word liability is not meant to provoke the tired debate around whether or not the will is free or bound. I think that scripture is abundantly clear that in a sinful state, we are not nearly as free as we think we are. And that even having been set free, that freedom is still a freedom within limitations. And that the only one that is truly free, according to scripture that is, is the one who has been born again. Jesus says, if the Son of Man sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And this is why it is the freedom that God gives to the believer that actually creates the possibility of making a mess of that freedom. Which is why we can say, yes, the greatest argument for Christianity is sin. Um, and the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. Because there is the paradox. The freedom that the gospel brings into the redeemed believer's life is a freedom to make a mess of that freedom. And we see that reality played out throughout church history. I have seen many people that know and love Jesus who have also blown up their churches. I've seen Christians make absolute disasters of their lives. I've seen more damage done. I would argue, actually, and I don't mean to say this in any sort of snarky way or, or to, to stab 
a person when they're down. But the best people I have ever known have been Christians. But let me just tell you, friends, the worst people I have ever known have been Christians as well. And that is a fact. Because nothing is more disturbing than utilizing the beauty and the grace of Jesus as a means for being vindictive, being hurtful, being proud, backbiting. This is why the greatest enemy the church will ever face, it's not freaking Antifa. It's you and me. We're the worst enemy of the church, not the people out there. That's why we're not called to be cloistered from the world. We are called to be in communion together, redeemed. The only thing that makes it the difference between a, a, a sinner and a saint is Jesus' words to his own disciples. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. He said that to his disciples. What is he saying in that statement? He's saying that there are two kinds of people. Evil people that have, been re that have said yes to the yes that God has declared over them in Jesus and evil people that have said no to the yes that God has declared over them in Jesus. Which means that the only thing that makes a saint a saint is that they're a sinner that's forgiven, period. And so I think that this is an important thing for us to understand is that when in right relationship with God, we are free, but it has limitations. And we're told that those before we came to a saving knowledge of Jesus, we were dead in our sin, slaves to our sin, which means that we are bound. So is humanity, is the will free? Kind of, sometimes, a little bit, but not totally. And, and is there the necessity for a divine intervention? Absolutely. Every move you make toward God, God is always previous. You don't come to God unless God drew, drew you. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And this is why I say we can't turn this into some kind of rational uh, exploration, which is why the church has led, it's led the church into so many damaging. Theologians sometimes have done the worst things to the church because theologians are just fallen minds who have the spirit of God like you and I trying to figure out what this whole thing of following Jesus means. And they try to do it in the best way that they can. And some of it's really helpful and some of it's not so helpful. Because there's mystery involved. If everything that happens is determined by God, that reduces humanity to the Stepford Wives. And the Stepford Wives was never a really great movie to begin with. If you don't know what that is, shame on you. Uh, nor... Uh, nor is the history of, of humanity where humans are gods, which is what much of our humanistic worldview is, is that we are our own gods. No, God is the storyteller, and it's his story, and there is limited freedom, and God can never be responsible for sin, which is what comes naturally out of a deterministic worldview. But God cannot be less than he is in himself, which means that he knows everything there is to know. And he can know everything there is to know without being the one responsible for everything that happens. Leave room for the paradox and the tension. If we want to do justice to scripture, we have to allow God to be sovereign and humans to be responsible, at least on some level. And so, that's just a little a, a side note. But here's the point. Is that humanity after the fall 
If the relationship wasn't complete before, it's even more incomplete now. And this is where the mystery of the gospel comes into play, full play. Because now we must behold the God-man. You see, we were told that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So the fall had been taken into consideration and God felt it worth it. And in fact, it was God fashioning Eve from Adam to bring the togetherness, the completeness, that now God in the incarnation fashions himself to fit man. God enters into his own story, the creator become creature. And this is a mystery that is so profound that it is the one thing I would argue that separates Christianity from every other major world religion. Now there are lots of minor faiths and cults throughout human history where people have proclaimed themselves to be God, but there is not a singular major world religion where the founder of that faith proclaimed himself to be God except for the Christian faith. It's the uniqueness of the Christian message. It's what they, what they, they refer to even as the, as the mystery of the Jerusalem factor, that Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, was crucified and on the third day rose from the dead and all of his followers, all of his disciples said they saw him alive. And it was that seeing him alive that became the, the, the thing that pushed the message of Christianity into an explosive fashion once we are told the Spirit of God came upon the followers of Christ. But what did they proclaim? That Jesus Christ died for your sins and on the third day he rose from the dead. And we have witnessed this thing. This is the power. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. That is, he tabernacled amongst us. God entered into the human predicament. Now here's the thing. God could have fashioned himself to man in the garden. But that would have been fashioning himself to man in his sinless state. Jesus is the son of God, the eternal son of God, who entered into not just the human experience, but he entered into the lowest point of the human experience, it's sin. He took upon himself sinful flesh. This is the power of the gospel. I'm not saying that Jesus sinned. I'm saying that he who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God's plan was to strengthen and reinforce the union that was very good in Genesis in a way that it could never be broken again. This is my fundamental belief. It's the whole purpose of the gospel is that the fall was necessary in order for God to enter into that which could disrupt communion by taking the fall into himself and addressing it in a once and for all fashion. And why this is so powerful is because just as God said over man in a fallen state, behold, the man has become like one of us, Pilate, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, declares over Jesus, though he is being sarcastic, what he does not understand is that he is saying the most true thing he ever said in his life. Behold the man. Behold the God-man. And what Pilate is essentially saying 
that is so true is that Jesus, what brought about Jesus' crucifixion is not that people saw God in the flesh. What they saw was man as God intended man to be. And it was the perfection of Jesus' life that brought about the worst that humanity can do. Kill true innocence. Destroy true innocence. Because the very crowd that cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, is now the very crowd that is crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And even Pilate is trying to wash his hands of this event. And he says, behold the man, Jesus with a crown of thorns smashed into his head. He has already been beaten and spit upon and taunted. And there he is presented to the world in this broken state. And yet this is the very essence of why the Christian faith is so peculiar amongst world religions. Because its founder is also its source of salvation. And there it is, Jesus in this broken place. And there he now actually represents you and I in a much fuller fashion. Because in that brokenness, in that beating, in that, in that being stripped naked and humiliated publicly, he takes into himself your and my brokenness in such a way that he can actually lift our heads out of the impossibility of this thing we call life. And it is there the pilot says, behold the man. He goes on to make a second very true statement too. He says, behold the king. And though he was mocking him, he could never have said another true word about him. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God with us and for us, stepping into the mess of our first parents and making it his own. It is here we find the mystery of the story has taken on even greater meaning for there never has been a time before the fall or after that it was good for man to be alone. The creating of the two along with the fall it produced, um, it produced was never the end but the means to the end. God himself fashioning himself to fit us in a once and for all way. It was through the woman's seed the great corrective came and the true completeness was made possible. The eternal son fitted into the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus, the God-man, who identified not just with our humanity but our brokenness. And it was on the cross that he took the isolation, the forsakenness of human existence, the loneliness David Foster Wallace in his famous interview with Salon Magazine after writing his masterpiece, which every person should read because it is the greatest novel of the last 30 years, Infinite Jest. We even had the staff read it. Um, it's only 1,100 pages. You're fine. You read the Bible. The Bible is the same length. He said of the book, my desire was to capture what I can only describe as a peculiar American loneliness. What he didn't understand is that it wasn't peculiar, nor was it American. It's the fundamental problem. It's why suicide is on the climb, is because we have bought into the lie that we are best alone. And we're not. We're desperately lonely. And we need one another. Some of you are in here today desperately lonely. And I'm telling you right now, Jesus has brought forth the key to that dilemma. 
He has brought the restoration that we need. Jesus, whom Pilate proclaimed before the violent world, behold the man, because he is the one for the many and the many and the one. And on the cross, Jesus, who is both the judge and the judged in our place, and it is here that the liability that led to the fall has been woven into God's redemptive history once and for all, sacrifice of Jesus, where he could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He tastes the loneliness for us, but it is immediately followed up with these words, it is finished. And this is the good news. And though it is finished, it has been dealt with. We all know, because we're here, it's not over for us yet. The truth will set you free, impotent jest, once again, but not until it's finished with you. Which is why we need to understand that we know and make known Jesus together in love because we become the evidence of this reconciling work. And this is why Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. The greatest emblem of what it means to be a witnessing church is how well we love one another, how we care for one another, how we are together. It's why we can't separate when Jesus said, uh, was asked, what are the most important commandments? What was, his, what was his response? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you may be asking, who is my neighbor? And I would just simply say, your neighbor is whoever is next to you, behind you, in front of you at any given moment. And so I close with this beautiful quote from Martin Buber, which I think is so true from his famous book, I Am Thou. God is present when I confront you, but if I look away from you, I ignore him. As long as I merely experience or use you, I deny God. But when I encounter you, I encounter him. Don't use one another. But let us begin to encounter each other, listen to each other, get to truly know each other, love one another, carry one another's burdens. Because Jesus, the God-man, has made it possible for us to be whole again. And we are moving toward a very good, very good end of the story that will actually be the beginning of the longest story you will ever live. It's called eternity. Amen? Let's pray.